going to invite you to start tonight by turning your Bibles to Luke chapter 20. Luke chapter 20. It's not often that I begin a message by asking us to turn to a different one that we have not read already, but tonight I want to start here. Luke chapter 20. The context here in verse 27 is that the religious leaders of the day have been trying to trip up Jesus in his words. They want to discredit him. They want to embarrass and humiliate him in front of the crowds and ultimately to put an end to his ministry. And in verse 27, it's the Sadducees' turn. The Sadducees were a relatively small political party, if you will, in that day, but they were extraordinarily influential. They were the people that would be the rich of society. They were the elite of society. They punched a weight, weight class significantly above their own size. And so the Sadducees, we read in verse 27, deny that there is any resurrection. They did not believe in the resurrection of the dead. And undoubtedly, they were too elite to believe that. They were simply too sophisticated, too smart, too uh, important to believe in such a thing as the resurrection of the dead. And they had an example here that they thought would reveal how silly the resurrection from the dead was. And they come to Jesus saying, Master, now this is feigned respect for Jesus. Moses wrote unto us, if any man's brother die having a wife and he die without children, that his brother should take his wife and raise up seed unto his brother. There were therefore seven brethren and the first took a wife and died without children. And the second took her to wife following this practice in the law of leverate marriage. And he died childless and the third took her and in like manner, the seven also. This is certainly a hypothetical. I have to wonder, even in the hypothetical, what husbands four, five, six, and seven were thinking. I don't know whether this, uh, these men had any more brothers, but we are graciously informed, last of all, the woman died also. She might have spared much bloodshed if there were indeed more brothers. Last of all, the woman died also. Therefore, in the resurrection, whose wife of them is she? For seven had her to wife. Now, you notice the conflict. They're trying to provide an absurd hypothetical to say the whole resurrection is nonsense. Because if there's this wonderful heaven that we're all going to be, and this woman under Moses' law... This was not people being immoral or committing adultery or violating marriage covenants. This was simply following Moses' law. If this truly is a resurrection when all of them are going to be alive, who's she going to marry? And what is, I think, implied? Are they going to be fighting over her? If heaven is this beautiful, wonderful place in the resurrection, is it going to be marred by envy and jealousy about, no, that's my husband, no, that's my husband, no, that's my husband? Jesus answering said unto them, the children of this world marry and are given in marriage, but they which shall be accounted worthy to obtain that world, the world of the resurrection and the resurrection from the dead, neither marry nor are given in marriage. Neither can they die anymore for they are equal unto the angels and are the children of God being the children of the resurrection. Now, again, notice the, how Jesus is correcting them. 
He's saying, you think in heaven there's going to be fighting over which of these seven men truly is going to claim her as his wife. But you're missing it because there's no such thing as marriage in heaven. They are not going to be fighting over because they are going to be like the angels of God. Now you say, why are you starting here in a message that is about the new heaven and earth and the new city? Because I think in any time we think about this new life that God has for us, what I've been encouraging us to think is that God is restoring and redeeming humanity to its original intent. The original intent of humanity was for man to commune in fellowship with God as God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And this fellowship was marred and broken by sin and with it God's world that he called very good was now descended into the same kind of brokenness and into the same kind of birth pangs that we talked about several weeks ago. But we have to acknowledge that God's original plan for humanity included marriage. Adam and Eve were married and became one flesh before they ever fell. And the question we need to ask ourselves is if this new heaven and a new earth is a restoration to God's original intent for humanity, not allowing the devil, his enemy, to have a victory, but instead bringing about redemption, why is it that in that world there will be no man and wife, even while before the curse, there was marriage. There was man and wife. Are we missing something in that new world, in the new heaven and new earth, by the fact that there will be no marriage? And as best as I understand Jesus's words to be, there will be no marriage partners. There will be no sexual intimacy in heaven. There will be nothing that would go along with what we would understand as the one flesh marriage bond today. Now we should think about that question. And as I said this morning, I think the answer is found in the passages that we read already. The glorious truth of the book of Revelation and indeed the teaching of scripture is that there is no need for marriage and indeed marriage would in a sense be inappropriate because there's another marriage and all our focus as people of God will be on that marriage and the intimacy of the union that we, the bride of Christ, have with our bridegroom, Jesus, the Son of God. The title of the message tonight is The Bridal City. The Bridal City. Because in Revelation 21, this new city, Jerusalem, is described as the Lamb's wife. Tonight, I want to bring out the idea that our eternal future with God will be a marriage in a city that is perfectly designed for the eternal bliss of a bridegroom and the bride that he chose 
from before the foundation of the world. The bridal, the bridal city. To start here, we need to get a little context. And we're going to start with what I'm going to call the bride espoused. Now, you need to understand that Jewish marriage culture was very different. In the first century, was very different than 21st century American wedding culture. I talked about it this morning, a bride coming adorned for her husband. In 21st century American weddings, the focus on the wedding day is on whom? The bride. Everyone is looking at this day as, in a sense, her showcase. This is the day that she has been preparing for. It is the day that she is adorned for. Not so in Jewish wedding culture. The focus in Jewish wedding culture was on the bridegroom. Because the marriage relationship went like this. A uh, father and his son may pick out a potential mate. They may go to the parents of that mate and enter a marriage contract. It would be in a spousal. It would be similar in our uh, idea to an engagement, but significantly more serious. It was actually a contract. In fact, I read that, in, in fact, the bridegroom would indeed pay, uh, there would indeed be the exchange of a dowry already. It would be a binding, if you will, contract. That's why in uh, the book of Matthew, Joseph is so uh, uh, concerned that Mary in the espousal period has become pregnant because it suggested to him that she was unfaithful, not just in a way, I guess we got to break off the engagement. But that, she, but that she had been unfaithful truly in the time that they were, in a sense, man and wife, even though they had not been consummated in a one flesh union yet. So there is this espousal period and then perhaps up to a year or more of preparation for the marriage in which the bride would begin to prepare herself for this uh, wonderful time. The family of the bride would be preparing uh, for it as well. The groom would be preparing the place for the bride to live. And then, in, as we see in Jesus' parables, the picture would be that the bridegroom would come in the middle of the night with his friends, the friends of the bridegroom, to pick up, if you will, the bride, to claim his bride. They would bring the entire wedding party back to the groom's father's house in which they would throw a massive feast. Now, the Cana of Galilee, the first miracle that Jesus ever performed was where? At a wedding feast. Now, friends, if you think weddings are expensive today, some of you have daughters. I have three. If you think weddings are expensive today, you should have seen them back then. Imagine if your wedding was not just putting on one meal. Uh, imagine that your, that your daughter's wedding was effectively put, um, bringing together the entire community. If anyone was traveling from out of town, putting them up at a place to stay and then basically entertaining them with parties for one, two or three days at which it was gratis, all expenses paid. This was a big deal. And I think it's rightly said that the reason there is so much of a picture of this marriage feast in the story of the gospel is because the marriage was the central social event of the day. This was the party. This was the community event, the wedding and the associated feast with it. 
So we need to come back into that culture when we are hearing scripture speak about this marriage relationship, this espousal between Jesus and his church. So turn with me to Ephesians chapter 5. You know this passage well, but it will help, I think, direct our thoughts on this topic. Ephesians 5, and we'll pick up in verse 25. Scripture says, husbands love your wives, even as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for it, that he might sanctify and cleanse it with the washing of water by the word. Now listen, that he might present it to himself, a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that it should be holy and without blemish. He goes on to say, they too shall be one flesh, speaking of man and wife. This is a great mystery, but I speak concerning Christ and the church. So who are the parties here in this espousal? Christ and the church, the ecclesia, though those who are called out and gathered across all ages. And earlier in Ephesians, we see in Ephesians 1 that this church is defined as his body, the fullness of him that filleth all in all. So again, we have this picture here of the church, the called out assembly that's connected to his Body. Now, there has been some uh, disagreement over truly the extent of what Paul is referring to here. Some people say that in this passage, as in other places in the New Testament, this church is simply the institution of the local church, that Jesus came and purchased this institution of the local church, and that the church, when it's used in Scripture, refers to a local gathering, a local gathering of called out ones. Some have even taken this to a much greater and farther extent. There are those who would call themselves landmark Baptists, landmarkism, sometimes called Baptist briders. They believe, they take this to a significantly greater extent to say that the bride of Christ, the church that is referred to here, is only those local churches who meet Baptist distinctives. And that if you are not in a church that has a Baptist distinctives, you are not part of the bride. You may be a part of the family of God, they say, but you are not part of the bride. You will only be a visitor at the marriage supper of the Lamb. Now, this strikes me to be wildly off base because it's completely out of step, it seems to me, with what the main point Paul is bringing out in Ephesians 1. The main point and what he's talking about is the gathering together of the people of God in Jesus Christ. Jews, Gentiles. He's talking about the body of Jesus Christ as the fullness of him who fills all in all. This idea of Jesus purchasing, giving himself for a bride is not giving himself for an institution. It's giving himself for a people group. That is going to be the great glory of heaven. So I disagree with the view that the church in mind here is an institution like a local body. I also disagree with the idea, of course, that it would be only those who are members of a certain kind of local body. It seems to me that what Paul is suggesting here is exactly what we might give an ordinary or normal reading to it. 
The ones that are part of the church are the ones that Jesus gave himself for. Those who would be ransomed and redeemed by his blood. And indeed, in our statement of faith as a church, we talk about the invisible body of Christ across the entire world today, one day becoming the visible body of Christ, the bride of Christ redeemed. So we see here Christ and his church are the parties. And notice what scripture says. Christ loved the church and gave himself for it. Remember what we said, this espousal included. It included a dowry. What was the dowry that Jesus gave for the espousal of his bride? Himself. He did not give possessions. He did not give things. He gave his own body. No one has ever given what Jesus gave to possess a bride. This is the ultimate act of his own self-sacrifice for the forgiveness of our sins. But then notice this presentation. In verse 27, it says that he might present it to himself a glorious church. So the picture is Jesus sets his sights on a bride. He goes to purchase her, to choose her with the dowry of his own self-sacrifice, his own sacrificial atonement. And the goal is that in this espousal, at the day in which he claims her as his own, she is now a presentable spouse, that he might present it to himself, a glorious church. You see the picture Now, this gets to a personal level when we realize that Jesus did not, when coming to die for the church, he came to die for individuals. And Paul has this idea in mind in 2 Corinthians 11 when he says, For I am jealous over you, you church at Corinth, with godly jealousy, for I have espoused you to one husband that I may present you as a chaste virgin to Christ. You see that picture? He's looking at a local group of Christians and he's saying, I want to present you to Christ. Wait, Ephesians 5 says that Christ will present the church to himself. There's no contradiction there. Jesus, of course, uses us as his representatives to call people in to the church. And here Paul is looking at these individuals and saying, I want to present you as this pure and holy uh, element of the bride of Christ to him at that great day. So again, think of the picture here. The same picture, Jesus has gone to choose a spouse for himself. He has given himself in ultimate self-sacrifice. And now we are looking ahead to that day when that church, his bride, will be presented to him. Secondly, let's look at the bride claimed. We've looked at the bride espoused. Now look at the bride claimed. And turn over to Revelation 19, the first passage that Kevin read for us tonight. Revelation chapter 19. Now where is this in the book of Revelation? This is after, and just contemporaneously, after the great tribulation. This is after, we believe, the rapture of the church, when the church has been withdrawn from the world, when there will be a great tribulation, Jacob's tribulation, 
a time of judgment on the earth, a time of God's, the, the period when God will reveal himself gloriously to his nation of Israel, his ethnic people of the Old Testament, fulfilling his covenant promises to them. And here the ransom church is now in heaven. And we read in verse 7, let us be glad and rejoice and give honor to him, the Lord God omnipotent who reigns. For the marriage of the lamb is come and his wife hath made herself ready. Now, why does it say it's the marriage of the lamb? Revelation 21 calls that new city Jerusalem whose wife? The Lamb's wife, not the Lord's wife, not the Savior's wife, the Lamb's wife. Why is this? Well, we go back to Ephesians 5. What is the fundamental payment, the fundamental dowry that was given for the church of Jesus Christ? himself. You remember John the Baptist, the very last Old Testament prom, uh, prophet, looked at Jesus in his ministry and said, behold, the Lamb of God that taketh away the sins of the world. Do you remember then when he speaks in John 3, John the Baptist testifies, he is the bridegroom. I am the friend of the bridegroom. Do you know in a real sense, John the Baptist wasn't a part of the church? The church started with the descent of the Spirit at Pentecost. John was the friend of the bridegroom, looking at the bridegroom and saying, I am testifying to him. I am standing with him as his friend as he goes to claim his bride for himself. Here, the lamb is the fundamental aspect because Jesus' self-sacrifice for sin is in view here. But then notice this feast. The marriage of the lamb has come and his wife hath made herself ready. And then he says in verse 9, Blessed are they which are called unto the marriage supper, the marriage feast of the lamb. This is again a part of Jesus claiming his spouse in keeping with that first century marriage custom. There is an espousal. There is a preparation there is a presentation and there is a really big party, a really big feast. Again, notice this picture here. The feast that all of us will be blessed to be invited to is this celebration of the Lamb's marriage to the church that he purchased with his own blood. But then notice verse 9. And he saith unto me, I'm sorry, verse 8, And to her was granted that she should be arrayed in fine linen, clean and white, for the fine linen is the righteousness of saints. What is the bride's wedding garment? Clean, white linen, which is the righteousness of the saints. Now, we need to ask ourselves, what is that righteousness of the saints? Scholars tell us actually that this word in the Greek for righteousness is plural. It is literally righteousnesses of the saints. In fact, that has led some of our other translations to, to define that phrase as the righteous acts of the saints. 
And I think that is the idea. You say, that is odd. That sounds like a kind of works righteousness, as if we're all going to be up in front of Jesus at that marriage supper of the Lamb, and we're going to be showing off everything that we did, these great righteousnesses that we have. And that's simply not the case. Because what we need to understand is that this adorning of the bride, these righteousnesses of the saints are perfectly consistent with God's plan for his bride from the very beginning. Do you remember in Ephesians 2, this book, bringing out the relationship between Christ and his church, we are told for you are saved by what? How are you saved? By grace through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. Not of works, lest any man should boast. But then what does Paul hasten to add? For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus unto good works. Righteousnesses, righteous acts, which God hath before ordained that we should walk in them. This was the purpose of God for his church, for the bride of Jesus to bring out these righteous acts. In fact, we see elsewhere in scripture this idea that the works that we do, the good works that we do in this life will endure for eternity. 1 Corinthians 3, Paul brings out the idea of someone laying a foundation, of building on a foundation, I should say, that has already been laid in Christ. And he says, now if any man build upon this foundation gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, stubble, every man's work shall be made manifest, for the day shall declare it because it shall be revealed by fire. And the fire shall try every man's work of what sort it is. I think this is consistent with this idea and it's consistent with Philippians 2, which tells us that we are to work out our own salvation, bring it to the surface, bring it to the daily aspects of our lives. For it is God which worketh in you both to will and to do of his good pleasure. You see, friends, the righteous acts of the saints of God are not our works. They're his through us. And indeed, when we live out our own commitment to Jesus Christ and our faith in him by his power through us, there is a beautiful adorning of the church of God. As Jesus said, a city that is set on a hill cannot be hid. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your father which is in heaven. Friends, our relationship, our connection to Jesus Christ is not solely in our prayer closets. It is in our daily lives of righteousnesses, righteous acts accomplished by his power. I was reminded in Acts chapter 9 of the example of Tabitha, a woman who, like the present day version, was full of good works. I was struck by this phrase in Acts. The Bible itself says of Tabitha that she was full of good works and alms deeds, which she did. She was full of them. And when she died, Peter came to the bed where she was, the house where she was lying. And all the widows stood by him weeping, showing the coats and garments which Dorcas made while she was alive. <laughs> 
Can't you just imagine that scene of a woman who was part of the bride of Christ and here after her death in her righteousnesses performed by the work of God flowing through her, there were these coats and garments which they had made and they were a testimony to a life of faithful service and adorning in Jesus Christ. I think there's a sense in which this is what scripture is communicating to us, that there will be something obvious about the bride of Christ in that day. Will it all be connected ultimately to the righteousness of Jesus Christ imputed on our behalf? Of course. But the adorning of that bride will be, notice, given. It was granted that she should be arrayed. It's all through God's power. It is all through his grace. But ultimately, this is a calling that we have to adorn ourselves as well. So there's a bride espoused. There's a bride claimed here in Revelation 19. And now look lastly at a bride united. Turn to Revelation 21. A bride united. Verse 9 tells us, And there came unto me, the apostle John, one of the seven angels which had the seven vials full of the seven last plagues, and talked with me, saying, Come hither, I will show thee the bride, the Lamb's wife. Now let's stop there. Why do you think the city is called the Lamb's wife? Why is the city called the lamb's wife. I thought we were the wife. I thought we were the bride, the church that Jesus died for. Why is it now that is the new city coming down out of heaven that is described as the bride? And my answer is simply this, because it is so well fitted as a bridal city that it is perfectly identifiable with us. It's as if you had a wife that has taken over a home, a house, and so made it the home that is, it just is identifiable with her. It is, is as if they are one. She knows where everything is. Everything has been arranged with her touch. It is her home. And I think it's as if God is telling us that that bridal city that will come down from heaven in which we will spend eternity with our bridegroom, Jesus Christ, has been prepared so seamlessly for that bridal relationship that it is as if it is us. We are the city. The city is us. We are connected and fitted perfectly for one another. But I want you to notice as well about this city is this community that is in it. Notice verse number 12. Scripture tells us that this city had a wall great and high and had 12 gates and at the gates 12 angels and names written thereon which are the names of the 12 tribes of the children of Israel. On the east three gates, on the north three gates, on the south three gates, and on the west three gates. And the wall of the city had 12 foundations, and in them the names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. Now notice this very, very carefully. We would expect to see those foundations with the 12 names of the apostles. 
Jesus himself testified to the kingdom that would come for his 12 apostles and would involve reigning over the 12 tribes of the children of Israel. But what's interesting is that the gates themselves are the 12 names of Jacob's children. What is that telling us? It is telling us that this bride must necessarily be expanded to cover all of God's people across all ages, Old Testament and New, because it encompasses all those who fall within God's people of ethnic Israel and God's people in the redeemed church. And I'm reminded of what we are told in, in Scripture in which that in, the, in Ephesians 1, that in the dispensation of the fullness of times, he might gather together in one all things in Christ, both which are in heaven and which are on earth, even in him. The great unity of all times and all places will be in that bridal city. And that shouldn't challenge our theology at all. Because everyone across all ages who will be in this city are those who came by Jesus Christ. We heard this morning about Abraham looking ahead to that city. He, he was seeking a continuing city, one whose maker and builder was God. How did those men of, and women of the Old Testament enter in ultimately to this kingdom of God through the work of Jesus Christ? that was prophesied to and anticipated even in the Old Testament. This is a unifying of all things, Old Testament and New, Jews and Gentiles, men and women across one united community in Christ. We looked this morning at the stupendous size of this city. And with apologies to if you were listening this morning, I just want to point out that the size of this city was 12,000 furlongs long and broad and high. And we pointed out this morning that at a minimum, that would be about 1,400 square miles or miles one direction, long, broad and high. We talked about the fact this morning that 1,400 miles from here going due west is about Seattle, Washington, a city that stretches from here to Seattle, Washington, and south the exact same distance, and not only that, 1,400 miles high. The International Space Station is about 250 miles high. Go five times higher than that. And you're starting to understand the scope of the new city, the bridal city, when all of God's people will be gathered together across all ages in the relationship of bridegroom and bride that God has been preparing for his people. There's going to be no problem with crowding in that bridal city. All of us will be there in a city perfectly suited for a marriage relationship. And that's why I want to focus on tonight this idea of the communion that you and I are going to experience in that city. Of course, we talk about the communion with one another, the unity that we will have perfectly in Jesus Christ. But have you reflected on this picture of a marriage to Jesus? 
Have you reflected on the idea that the picture of marriage we see in the best marriages, that harmony, that unity, that kind of of just contentment and satisfaction with one another will only be the faintest foretaste of the relationship that you will have with your bridegroom. That Jesus, as the groom, is the one who is calling us in and will claim us eternally one day and then will be united to us in the most stupendous unity of fellowship that any of us could ever taste of or imagine. Friend, we are wired as human beings to desire fellowship with one another. Those of us who are married have experienced that in a sense, that kind of hunger that this woman or this man is the one who I am called to come in this kind of fellowship and relationship with. And whether it's the relationship of marriage or whether it's close friendship, we are human beings who desire fellowship. And the God who made you that way is pointing you to a relationship that is going to be so good you can't even imagine it. It's going to be a marriage. And it's going to be us with our groom who has prepared a city perfectly suited for he and for us to dwell together forever in perfect harmony, in perfect peace, in perfect unity. That is the bridal city that is perfectly suited for a bride. So let's come back to the question we asked ourselves already today. Why will there be no marriage in heaven? Why is there no giving of marriage? Why will there not be that spousal relationship? Is God missing something about the Garden of Eden? Are we lacking something from God's original design? And the answer is no. Because friends, here's the point. Listen to Revelation 13, verse 8. And all that dwell upon the earth shall worship him whose names are not written in the book of life of the Lamb slain from the foundation of the world. When did God purpose that a lamb would be slain to purchase a bride for himself? When? From the foundation of the world. When? When did that occur? Before Eden. And now listen to Revelation 17, 8. Scripture says of some that their names were not written in the book of life from the foundation of the world. Friends, when was our name written in the book of life? From before the foundation of the world. In other words, in this book of life that makes up the bride of Jesus Christ, this was a match made in heaven from before the foundation of the world, from before Eden. What I'm suggesting to you is that from even before Eden was planted, that garden, before Adam and Eve, before the first picture of their one flesh relationship, God had already chosen a spouse 
and his son had already committed to pay the dowry of his own self-sacrifice. That is why Ephesians 1 tells us that he has chosen us in him before the foundation of the world. That we should be holy and without blame before him in love. Why? So that he could present to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing. Friends, the doctrine of election may be a challenging one. We may not understand every one of its implications, but be assured of this. Your marriage to Jesus Christ, our marriage to Jesus Christ, was not a detour. It was the plan. And that tells me that Adam and Eve's marriage in the Garden of Eden was not in a sense God's eternal plan for mankind. It was a picture all along. Paul says this is a great mystery, but I speak concerning Christ and the church. It means that our lack of marriage in heaven is not something faulty about God's original intent in Eden. It tells us that the original intent in Eden was to point forward to eternity, a far greater and richer reality that could, than could ever be found in a human spouse when we looked ahead to the relationship that Jesus would have with his church chosen before the foundation of the world. And it also tells us this, friend. It tells us that we could not have a marriage relationship in heaven with another human being because our relationship with Jesus Christ is going to be so all-consuming that we, in a sense, could not even dream of another. I'm reminded in Revelation 21... That scripture tells us the former things will not be remembered. And friends, I don't care how wonderful, uh, uh, how much of heaven on earth your marriage is today. You won't be able to remember its glories for the glory of your marriage to Jesus Christ in the bridal city. I want to just close briefly with three suggestions for application for us tonight. The first is this, if you are married here tonight, your marriage is a picture of a far greater and more eternal reality. And your marriage testifies to those around you about the glories of that eternal marriage between Christ and his church. That's why my counsel to you as well as it is to me is to fight for the beauty of the picture of that eternal marriage between Christ and his church. I've said this before, but in a real sense, do not be content with having a less than the best marriage that God has for you. Because you are testifying to your children if you have them, to your family, to your, to your friends about Jesus' love and his relationship to his church. And when we allow petty grievances and petty bickering and petty selfishness and all of these things to divide us in the eyes of our children and in the, in the eyes of, our, of our, those around us, we are testifying to them a lie about what Jesus intended for the relationship between him and his church. The strength, the health, the purity of your marriage matters. 
Do not let the beauty of that eternal picture be consumed by your own fleshliness and my own fleshliness and carnality. Resolve to maintain and fight for and work toward in humility the kind of marriage that as best as God allows you is a picture of that eternal marriage that we will have with Jesus Christ one day. Husbands, there's one other point for you. Marriage eternally will look like the Lamb of God dwelling with his people forever. And I'm reminded of 1 Peter 3 saying, Husbands, dwell with your wives according to knowledge, giving honor unto the wife as unto the weaker vessel. Just like Jesus will condescend down into a bridal city perfectly fitted for us, husbands, you and I are called to dwell with our wives in that same tabernacling, condescending to them in love and humility and service. Do you want to have a good marriage? Husbands, start there. Dwell with them like Jesus will dwell with us eternally. There's a second part. It's this. Marriage is not only a picture. It is in a certain sense a foretaste, as I said before. And my counsel to you who are married is let the joys of your marriage here on earth not lead you to cling more tightly to your marriage, but instead to look ahead to the incomparable joys that await you. As I've said, the former things will not be remembered. You will not be in heaven looking back to the joys you had with your spouse and saying, I'm really missing out on something. Your relationship with Jesus is going to be eternally and incomparably more sweet. I was challenged by reading about the relationship of John Newton with his wife, Mary. A woman he was married to for 40 years. This old slave trader, this man who had been so cruel and hostile to even slaves, of course, that he was bringing in servitude, ultimately his life transformed by Jesus Christ. He and his wife had just a wonderfully sweet marriage. Husbands, if you want to be challenged in the way you speak to your wife in affection and the way you uh, relate to her in sensitivity and love, read John Newton's letters to his wife. They were published after her death and they just contain just a remarkable um, uh, sensitivity, a wonderful love and tenderness that he had for her. John Newton, when he, his wife passed away in 1790, she struggled for many years with what seemed to be a cancer, ultimately wasting away. And John Newton tells of the time that she passed away. He writes this, when I was sure she was gone, I took off her ring according to her repeated injunction and put it upon my own finger. I then kneeled down with the servants who were in the room and returned the Lord my unfeigned thanks for her deliverance and her peaceful dismission. John Newton ultimately preached at his wife's funeral 
And he said that as he reflected on these things, he said, I saw what indeed I knew before, but never till then so strongly and clearly perceived that as a sinner, I had no right. And as a believer, I could have no reason to complain. I considered her as a loan, which he who lent her to me had a right to resume whenever he pleased. And that as I had deserved to forfeit her every day from the first, it became or was fitting to me rather to be thankful that she was spared to me so long. He went on to say, when my wife died, the world seemed to die with her. I hope to revive no more. I see little now, but my ministry and my Christian profession to make a continuance in life for a single day desirable, though I'm willing to wait my appointed time. There's a sense in which in this wonderful spirit, John Newton looked at his wife as a gracious gift from God, but ultimately a recognition that his greatest fulfillment was in his eternal relationship with Christ, not in the glory or the beauty of the relationship which he had. And I also want to say, for those of you who are not married, who wonder, will you ever be married? Or for those of you who have had a hard marriage, a difficult marriage, a marriage that does not seem to feel very much like the relationship between Christ and his church. I want to encourage you as well that there is a marriage relationship for you coming that is incomparably sweet, that there is nothing that you have missed or will miss outside of God's will for you. That will, not be in, that will not be taken completely and beautifully in our marriage to him eternally. I'm reminded of what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 7. The unmarried woman cares for the things of the Lord that she may be holy both in body and in spirit. And that's what leads me to this final thought for all of us, whether married or unmarried. It's that our job right now is to prepare we have been espoused to Jesus Christ. We have not yet been claimed. We, in a sense, have not experienced that bridal unity with Jesus Christ forever. And so what is our calling right now? Just like a first century bride between her espousal and the day of her marriage would be preparing her garments, so both you and I, every single day, can be preparing. Preparing in righteous acts, done in faith and to the glory of God, in love and kindness and service to the people of God, and ultimately seeking that we may be presented to Jesus Christ as a holy and pure virgin ready for our bridegroom. I just want us to think again as we close here tonight, about the glory of a city of God that has been made new for us. And what I hope all of us will be stirred in a greater way tonight is to long for your bridegroom to come and claim you as his own. That this will just be a foretaste tonight that will spur you on in your own holiness, in your own pursuit of righteous works of good deeds done by him, for him, and through him. And ultimately, may all of our lives, whether married or unmarried, reflect that great day coming when Jesus claims his bride and when we enjoy him forever. 
Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you. We thank you for Jesus Christ. We thank you for that day when the marriage of the Lamb will come. Father, for now, your bride is preparing. Your son is preparing a place for his bride. And his bride is preparing for his arrival. Father, would you challenge us? Would you reveal in a greater way to us the reality of that great day coming? And may it affect the way we live today. Let's pause with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. However the Spirit has spoken to you tonight, would we all listen? And he saith unto me, write, blessed are they which are called into the marriage supper of the Lamb. Oh, I pray, Father, that each one here and each one within the sound of my voice would indeed be invited to that marriage supper of the Lamb. I pray, Father, that we would give ourselves to the kind of adorning, the kind of preparation that you have called us to as your servants and as members of your bride. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.